John's Gospel. Gospel of John, our text this morning will be the first five verses of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. As we come to this gospel, I just want to remind you, really, the keynotes of this book is actually found at the end of the book. Chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written to you, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Now, perhaps like me, you knew that verse, and you knew that was a keynote, I've known that since college when I took a New Testament introduction course. What never really hit me until about a year ago was the way that each scene in John's gospel, each section is actually driving towards that keynote, which means we need to be asking the question at each place we come to in John's gospel, how is this text pointing me to belief in Jesus as a Messiah? How is this text pointing me making it reasonable for me to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the promised king in the line of David, who's come to rule over God's world, to bring redemption to his people, to bring about new heavens and new earth. How is this place in the Bible doing that? And so this morning, and indeed in this entire prologue, we're going to see, in the first 18 verses of this, this book, we're going to see how this image of the word works. Um, we're going to ask particular questions. Why does John use this image? How is it contributing to you and I believing that Jesus is the Messiah? And so in believing that, have life in his name. But in order to hear this word of God for us this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him to come among us, would you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come as your people this morning around your word, and we, we desire to hear the word of the Lord. We desire to hear you this morning speak in Holy Scripture. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray you would come. Open our eyes of faith this morning that we would see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. And above all, may we see Jesus as one who is worthy of our trust and indeed one who demands a commitment from us. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, for anyone who's familiar with the Bible, that, that first phrase in what we just read, in the beginning was the word, it actually takes you back, doesn't it? takes you back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first verse uh, of the very first book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is quite intentionally beginning his book in such a way as to cast your mind back to Genesis. And the question is why? Why does John begin his gospel this way? Why does he relate consciously relate the story of Jesus 
to the story of human history? Well, one reason may relate to the way that John's gospel functions to the other three gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call those three gospels the synoptic gospels because they see things in the same way. Synoptic, sin, with, is the prefix for with, optic, see. So synoptics are, the synoptic gospels see things the same way. They see with each other. But you know if you've read the Gospels, all four of them, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke look at things in a particular way, and John looks at things in a completely different way. He arranges his material completely differently, and it's especially the case at the beginning of their Gospels. I mean, think about it. When you, when you come to Matthew's Gospel, how does it begin? I mean, Matthew's Gospel begins with the genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And so Matthew is particularly interested in the first verses of his gospel to orient you to the Old Testament, and particularly the great covenant promises made to David that one of his sons would be a forever king ruling over a forever kingdom, and then beyond him, Abraham, that one of Abraham's sons, through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then immediately afterwards, you have the angel coming to Joseph, telling him that Mary, though she was still a virgin, engaged to be married to Joseph, somehow would conceive a son and he would be in the line of David and he would take away the sins of the world. That's Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel opens how? What well, opens with these angelic messengers coming to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth and eventually to Mary announcing that the fulfillment of the, of the promises to Abraham and David was coming in this child who was going to be born through Mary. And this child would be one who would be the son of the Most High. Mark's gospel opens completely differently, doesn't it? It plunges you right into Jesus' ministry, starting with John the Baptist witnessing to Jesus, and then Jesus himself showing up in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But John does something completely different. He doesn't so much root you in history, per se, genealogy or angelic appearance, or, or yet John the Baptist showing up, although John the Baptist will show up in the next verses. No, he uses this prologue, the first 18 verses of his gospel, to tell us that Jesus as the word of God didn't simply begin his ministry uh, as John the Baptist announced him. And Jesus, as the word of God, didn't simply begin his ministry when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. No, Jesus, as the word of God, was there in the beginning. In fact, before the beginning. Because John's making a big claim about Jesus as the word of God here. He's telling us that this Jesus who became flesh and dwelt among us, who, who taught and preached and healed among men, this Jesus who died as a man and rose again as a man, he was much more than a man. What, what John wants you to walk away with from these first verses in the prologue is this, Jesus is God. Now friends, if Jesus is God, then what we're doing this morning has eternal significance Yes. But even more, if Jesus is God, then you cannot remain indifferent to him. 
You can't play around with Jesus. You can't profess to be a disciple of Jesus, verbally profess and sing his praises here, and then go live like the devil the rest of the week. Live how you want. Act as though your, your profession means nothing, because Jesus Christ is God. He's the God of the universe, through whom all things were made, through whom redemption comes. Which means this morning, there's going to be a call for commitment. The preacher will certainly make a claim, call for commitment, but this text actually makes such a claim upon you. Because Jesus Christ, the word of God, is God. He's the God who's always been before there was a beginning. He was the God who was there in the beginning. He was the God who dwelt among us. He's the God who's present with us now by his spirit. And he demands something from you. He demands a commitment from you. That's what John's driving at in this text and indeed in his entire gospel. These things are written so that you might believe. Not just some point in time when you were 8, 10, 12, 16 years old. Not just when you were in college. But today, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Are you committed to following after him? Are you determined to stop messing around with your Christian profession and actually follow hard after Christ? That's what Jesus wants from you this morning. And it has everything to do with who the word is. Have, have you ever wondered why John uses this expression, the word? He's going to tell us later, and we're going to see it in a couple of weeks, that this word is in fact Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Why, why does John use this image of the word and apply it to Jesus? Why doesn't he just simply say, in the beginning was Jesus, or in the beginning was the Son of God? Well, I think part of the reason, at least, John uses this image of the word is to tell us important things about Jesus' divine nature. And, and first of all, that Jesus, as the word is in fact God's self-expression. He is the very expression of God, the very word of God. Now, in the Old Testament, when God spoke, things happened. You know that from the creation account, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Water, uh, the waters of the deep were roiled. The spirit hovered over the waters. And then Genesis 1-3, and then God said, let there be light, and light was. There, was. there appears to be no gap between God speaking and things happening. But that's the case throughout the Old Testament. Whenever God speaks, things happen. So much so that in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord was sometimes equated for God himself. That happens in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah to call him, Jeremiah 1, 4. But by the time you get to Jeremiah 1, 7, the word of the Lord is God himself speaking to him. So that there's no line, no division between the word of the Lord and the Lord himself. To be God's word is to be the expression of God himself, his character, his nature, his property, his power. And so John here is saying that in the beginning was the word and, and God's word is God's self-expression in the beginning. Before the beginning was, 
God's own expression of himself was. As the early church affirmed, there never was a time that the word was not. That's why Jesus will say that to Philip in this gospel, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We might say whoever has heard me has heard the Father. Why does Jesus say that? Because he is the very expression of the Father. There is no hidden God behind Jesus. To hear Jesus is to hear God himself. To see Jesus is to see God himself. And friends, that's really good news for you. There was a theologian in the 20th century, a man named T.F. Torrance. He was a Scots Presbyterian theologian, and he during World War II, he actually served as a chaplain for the King's Own Royal Rifles. In late 1944, uh, Allied troops were working in San Marino, Italy. And some of these troops actually were storming a wall where there were a number of Axis troops at the top of the wall, and they were simply mowing down the Allied troops. Torrance was serving as a chaplain to this uh, unit, but during the battle, he was working with the medics to get men, injured men, dying men from the front lines to the back lines so that he might minister to them before they die. He picks up the story after he picked up another man. He says, when daylight filtered through, I came across a young soldier. His name was Private Phillips, scarcely 20 years old, lying mortally wounded on the ground who clearly had not long to live. As I knelt down and bent over him, he said to me, Padre, or Father, is God really like Jesus? I assured him that he was. The only God there is, the God who has come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us and poured out his love to us as our Savior. You see why this is important? Sometimes we think as though the God of the Old Testament is this angry deity, or God the Father is some kind of angry deity, and Jesus, the Son of God, is a loving God. And somehow there's this division within God. There's, there's a God behind Jesus. But what John is trying to sell us is, no, there is no other God other than Jesus, the Messiah. He is, in fact, the Word. He's the self-expression of God. And so when Jesus comes to you with love and mercy and grace, you don't have to worry there's strings attached to his love. He represents God's own self to us. He is God's expression. But there's another thing that John's telling us here. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What is the Word? The Word is God's expression, but he's also distinct from God. The word is not identical with God, as though he's somehow another face for God. As though there's this single deity, like our Unitarian friends might think. And he shows up in the Old Testament as God the Father, and the New Testament is God the Son, and, and in this age is God the Spirit, but he's simply wearing masks, or shows up in various modes. No. No, there's actually plurality within God. C.S. Lewis observed this, didn't he, in Mere Christianity, talking about 1 John 4, 8, God is love. In order for God to be love in his own being, there must be being within God's own self that's distinct from him and yet identified with him so that he might, in fact, be love in his own self. And that's what John is saying here. That, yes, the word is God, He's the very expression of God, and yet he's distinct from God. 
But then he goes on to say at the end of verse 1, in the beginning was the word, God's expression, and the word was with God, distinction, and yet the word was God. Or actually, the way these words are arranged in the original in Greek is God was the word. It's emphatic. Obviously, that's, that's a direct claim that, that the word of God is, in fact, divine. He, he's not the first created being, a lowercase g God, lowercase g God, through whom all other things were made. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe, that he was a God, the word, Jesus, the first created being. no. No, John is saying that, in fact, this word of God, who is God's own self-expression, is distinct from God and yet is God himself, identifiable with God. And so when we think about who this word is, who Jesus is, it's clear what John is telling us. Jesus is, in fact, the word is, in fact, God. He's God's self-expression distinct from and yet identifiable with God. Now, why is this important? Friends, it's important because the entire story of the Bible hangs on this point. The entire gospel that you believe, it's right here. Because, friends, if Jesus isn't God, he can't rescue you. If Jesus is simply a great moral teacher, a prophet, a sage, he can't save you from yourself. And when you die, it's over. Your hope for this life and the life to come centers on the fact that the one you have believed in is, in fact, God himself. God was the word. C.S. Lewis made this point, didn't he, in, in Mere Christianity? He said, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the very devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a, a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I mean, that's really the decision before you this morning, isn't it? Listen, some of you have been living in direct contradiction to your profession. On Sunday, you profess and you sing and you act like a Christian here at church. But during the week, you've embraced darkness and you've lived wild and you know it. And you show up periodically, once every five to six weeks as a kind of penance but you know that you're not living up to your profession, studying to be a disciple of Christ, following after him. Listen, you're messing with one who is the very God of heaven. The one, as we're going to see in John chapter 5, who has all judgment. The one who's able to pierce into your very heart in ways that I would never desire to do. Which means this morning... If you're messing around with Jesus, you are messing around with someone who has the power to cast you into hell and to show your profession to be a fraud. Friend, don't be in that place. Today is the day of salvation because the word of God, Jesus himself, is speaking to you. And he desires for you to hear who he is so that you might call him Lord and God. Why does that make sense? 
Why does it make this why does it make sense to bow the knee to Jesus? Well, it makes sense because of what the word does. Well, verse 3 tells us part of what he does. It, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the word of God, he is the creator. John gets at this both positively and negatively. Positively, all things were made through him. Everything that we see, all the beauty of this world, Jesus is the agent and mediator of this creation. And we know that from the creation account. God said, let there be light. The word of God was the mediation between what God intended and what actually happened. He is the agent, the mediator. God said, let there be light. And light was. All things were made through him. Negatively. And without him was not, was, was not anything made that was made. And so negatively stated, the state of creation is such that nothing was made apart from God's word. This divine expression, this divine person who's distinct from and yet identifiable with God. Of course, that agrees with other parts of scripture, doesn't it? Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Or the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to affirm that Jesus is the agent, the word of God is the agent or mediator of creation? Well, it's important because it's another claim for Jesus' deity that in fact, who we are dealing with in Jesus is in fact God himself. But it's also important for another reason. Namely, if, if, if Jesus is going to be your redeemer, he has to be the creator. Right? Only God could be the creator. Only God could call worlds into existence. Only God has that kind of power. But likewise, only God can redeem. Only God can intervene for you through a substitutionary atonement as, as the God-man identifying with you in your humanity but bearing the weight of your sin, the sin that deserves an eternal judgment. Only God can bear that weight, which means that the Redeemer must be God. And so this Redeemer whom you've trusted in, he's not just Redeemer, he's also Creator. That's what the import of this is. The early church fathers recognized this. Athanasius, for example, in the fourth century put it this way. It is not appropriate for created life to be found in any except the Lord who is before all ages and through the ages came into existence. So that since it was in him, we also might be able to inherit that eternal life through him. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that if we're going to have a creator and we're going to have a redeemer, if there's going to be a creator who made all things apart from whom nothing was made that was made, well, he must be God. But we need a deity as well who's going to rescue us from sin so that we might have eternal life. And this creator and redeemer is one person, the word of God, whom John identifies as Jesus the Messiah. Which means that when you bow the knee to this Jesus as Lord and God, you are bowing to him, yes, as the creator of all things. But you are also bowing to him as the redeemer who is able to rescue you from sin and death and hell. And that's exactly what the word wants to give you. If you were to come out of your darkness, sorrow, and night, the word desires to give you two great gifts. Light 
and life. That's what John says. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word gives light and life. And friends, you, you can't read this prologue, much less the rest of John's gospel, without knowing that there is more to light and life than simply something that happened at the beginning in creation. No, we'll see it over and again in the coming weeks that light is especially associated with Jesus. And it has to do with salvation. It has to do with light driving out the darkness of our lives. We're going to see next time how John witnessed to the light. Chapter 1, verse 7. You see it there. Um, he was not, uh, excuse me, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, John did, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's who Jesus is. He's the true light who's come into the world. And, and Jesus will declare this again and again in this gospel. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So that when you come and bow the knee to Jesus, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, what you find is that he grants light in the midst of darkness, certainly in the darkness of our world. We look at our world right now and it's incredibly dark and wonder, how in the world is this all going to hang together? Not just war upon war, the war in Afghanistan, but there are other conflicts that are going on. The virus that's spread across the globe, incredibly challenging political situations, not only in our own country, but in other places beside. And we wonder, how in the world is the light going to shine in the darkness of our world? But, but then we remember that night 2,000 years ago outside of Bethlehem, in a world that was quite similar to ours, in which there was a Roman oppression, economic difficulty, incredible poverty, struggle in Palestine, and the Palestinians not wanting the Romans to rule over them. Meanwhile, these incredibly poor men, shepherds, are watching over their flocks by night. They don't, they don't know what's going to happen. All they know is the darkness. When all of a sudden an angel shows, uh, shows up, and light begins to shine. And the good news is declared that born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then angels in glory and light. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Friends, if that happened 2,000 years ago, it can certainly happen again as it's happened over and over and over again across our world right now. In the midst of the darkness of our world, through each time zone, there are men and women, boys and girls, who are praising Jesus Christ as the one who said, I am the light of the world. And though from our vantage point, this world looks incredibly dark, the good news is that Jesus is still shining his own character, his salvific power into his world so that men and women and boys and girls might see him as the light who drives back the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. But that's the case not just for the larger world, that's the case for you. I mean, you, as you look in your own heart, and you see the darkness there, and you see your sin, and you see your dallying with the devil and his friends, 
And you see the, the, the broken places that you find yourself in over and over again, it seems. It seems as though you're so empty and dark, and you wonder, is the light ever going to shine there? And then you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what does God do? God shouts in our hearts, let there be light, and we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't you see that when you bow the knee to King Jesus as Lord and God, you bow the knee to one who is light himself and he will shine in your darkness and your darkness, your own heart's darkness, will not overcome him. And his light gives life. It's the life, the eternal life that your heart longs for. Not life that goes on and on, but life from the future that invades your present right now so that you live differently as a result. Well, again, we're going to see this in this gospel. Jesus himself will say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And of course, of course most familiarly in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But all those who do come to Jesus, all those who do come to his light, all those who put their trust in him, all those who bow the knee to him as Lord and God, what do they find? What do you find? That this is eternal life, as Jesus said in John 17, 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So some of you are at a crossroads this morning. You've known in your head, and perhaps at one time in your profession, that Jesus is in fact God. Not a distant God, not an isolated God, but a God who is present and real and active in his world and in your life. And you knew that at one point, but you have been wandering from him. Or perhaps you've never known that Jesus is in fact God, that Jesus is God, has claims upon you. Friends, this is the moment of decision. Are you going to bow the knee to this Jesus? Are you going to renew your discipleship this morning? Or are you just going to simply be honest with the God of heaven and say, I don't want you. I've been playing around with you. The place where you can't stand is in the middle. Lukewarm, one foot in this camp, one foot in this camp. No. No. Jesus himself, as the very word of God, won't allow you to do that. This morning, he's calling to you. And he's saying, come out of your darkness. Come out of your sorrow. Come out of your night. Come to me. Come to me, the very word of God who is there in the beginning and is here right now. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we bless you for your kindness to us, that you don't abandon us without a word, but through the Holy Scriptures you declare to us Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come. Do your work. I can't get into folks' hearts. You can. Lord, I pray that you will. I know there's folks in here who've been messing around. Lord, we do pray that you would be gracious and kind, woo and win them to yourself this morning, so that they might join in the angel's song, Glory to God in the highest. Lord, grant this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.